You're listening to Tell It from Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here's today's message. I always forget to mention that Laura's uh, with us uh, when she's here, so she's back with us, and uh, uh, she looks forward to being with the ladies as you have your uh, meeting at uh, 11.45 in room C114, so if if you'd like to join there, she she would love to see you and and greet you. Uh, This Thursday, we have a special uh, occasion We have the opportunity to get together in the night of power uh, and pray for our Muslim brothers, uh, friends, and neighbors. Uh, This will be both online and at the church office on 1776 Broadway. Uh, Registration is required, and you can do that either through the link that's at uh, this week at Calvary email or on our website under events. Also, uh, Ruth Clark, for those of you who knew her, uh, her celebration of life service is tomorrow at 6.30, and they have a live stream of the service, uh, and the link for that is also found in your This Week at Calvary email that was sent out on Friday, and also if you go to the More News section in our uh, website, you can find the link there as well. So if you would like to say farewell to Ruth and, uh, and rejoice in what God has done through her, that's a good occasion. So let's, let's pray before we go to God's Word. Our Father and our God, we uh, thank you for this morning that this, uh, we have this glorious privilege to hear from you because you speak to us from your word and your spirit through whom you gave us your word is here to instruct us, to help us to receive that word with open hearts and minds. We pray that you would indeed do that, Father, that we would hear from you this morning from your word through your spirit and that would lead to faith and obedience in us so that we may be better witnesses for the Lord Jesus, for your glory. And it's in his name we ask. Amen. Have you ever uh, been uh, aware of a great opportunity and then fail to take advantage of it? Some of you may have seen uh, that cartoon where uh, two dinosaurs are sitting on a rock and saying, darn, was that today when they see Noah's Ark float by? Sad. I I always get very sad when I see that cartoon. Uh, When we become aware of a wise, of a great opportunity, the smart, wise thing to do is to take advantage of it. Uh, I I started using JC as an example of good things on a regular basis because he he is a good guy. Um, So the other day he was telling me that he and Pam became aware that John Williams will be conducting the Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra at Carnegie Hall and they immediately purchased the tickets and experienced the performance last week. That would be the right thing to do. Uh, Many of us, however, ignore the great opportunities that have been made available to us. For example, we value our democracies, the privilege we have to elect our own governing officials. However, if you look at, uh, at the voter turnout in every election, it is so poor that you even wonder 
if people are aware of this privileges, the privilege of, uh, of voting uh, our, the government uh, leaders into place. Many of us uh, neglect these great opportunities and privileges that we are made aware of. But sometimes we are made aware of great truths, but we reject those truths. Every packet of cigarettes contains warning messages, and in some countries even gruesome pictures of smokers' lungs. Yet many people reject those warnings and smoke their way to uh, COPD and lung cancer. There are many billboards and videos that warn against texting while driving and the terrible accidents such things cause, but that doesn't stop people from taking their eyes away from the road to send that one text that can't wait. And for many of them, that would be the last text that they ever send. People are made aware of life-saving truths which they reject. This morning we will look at two mysteries that have been revealed to us as believers, and yet we are prone to either ignore them or even reject them. The mystery of the gospel, that Jews and Gentiles are equal in Christ, has been made known to us. However, sometimes the equality of all believers is an ignored revelation in the church. The mystery that the power of God is exercised in weakness is revealed through the cross, yet we reject that truth and engage in worldly ways of power through intimidation and access to political offices. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, to discover these two true great truths that have been revealed and how we ought to respond to them. By now you are familiar with this uh, outline that uh, we see every week. Paul, after introducing himself and wishing the Ephesians grace and peace, begins his letter to them with a doxology to God for the great work of salvation that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have accomplished for us. He then prays for them, among other things, that they would know the hope to which God has called them, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in His people, and the power of God that is at work on behalf of those who believe. And then in verses 20 to 23 of chapter 1, he digressed a little bit to explain the power as that which was exerted by God in the resurrection and exaltation of His Son above all powers to His right hand. Powers on earth and heaven, and Christ is above them all. In chapter 2, He provided two lines of evidence for Christ's exaltation over the powers. First, our salvation, that we as believers have been freed from the devil, from the world, and our flesh by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Second, the evidence for Christ's exaltation is that the enmity between Jews and Gentiles has been overcome through the cross. And the two have been made one new man, the church where God dwells through His Spirit. We come to chapter 3 where Paul appears to resume his prayer that was interrupted when he digressed in chapter 1 to explain the power of God at work in Christ. Now please follow along as I read uh, from chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, 
When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. For this reason, Paul begins with, for this reason, and we ought to ask, for what reason? For all the reasons he has stated so far in the first two chapters, our glorious redemption accomplished by our blessed God, the hope, the inheritance, and the power we have in Christ. Christ's victory over the powers demonstrated in our salvation and overcoming the enmity between Jews and Gentiles and unifying them in one body. For all these reasons, it appears that Paul wishes to continue his praise and prayer that he began in chapter 1 and had interrupted himself. But just as he interrupted himself in the middle of the prayer in chapter 1, he interrupts himself again in chapter 3. He first interrupted himself in chapter 1 verses 20 to 23 to explain that power of God that he was praying that we would know. It was the same power that God exerted in raising Jesus Christ and exalting him above all powers, rulers and authorities and seating him at his right hand as the head of the church. And he further digressed in chapter 2 to answer the question that may arise concerning the validity of his claim that Christ was exalted above all powers. How do you know that Christ is above all powers? How do we know that he has defeated all these rulers and authorities? Twofold evidence for Christ's victory over the powers is our freedom from these powers. And then the abolishing of the enmity caused by these powers between Jews and Gentiles, and both through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul appears to resume his prayer in chapter 3 verse 1 but interrupts himself again because there may be objections or questions concerning what he had just written in chapter 2 that could have arisen in the minds of his readers. He would again resume his prayer in chapter 3 verse 14 to 21 where he finally uh, concludes his prayer that he began in chapter 1 and chapter 3 14 we would see that begins with the same three words for this reason. So. He finishes the prayer finally in the section we will see tomorrow. But what are these objections that Paul anticipates and interrupts his prayer to answer in chapter 3, 1 to 13? Well, in chapter 2, he had argued that Christ is victorious over the powers and provided two lines of evidence for that victory. First, Christ has freed us from the devil, the world, and the flesh, the powers that kept us captive to sin and death. Second, 
Christ has overcome the greatest enmity there was between human beings, between Jews and Gentiles, by putting to death that enmity on the cross. That could raise two questions in the minds of his readers. The first question is, well, how do you know these things, Paul? Paul's answer, revelation. Since God the Spirit has revealed great truths to the apostles and the prophets, and Paul is one among the apostles, that is how he knows what he has just written to them in chapter 2. The apostles and prophets make known God's revealed mysteries to the church, and it is through the church that God puts these rulers and authorities on notice concerning his wisdom, whereby he has defeated them through his Son. A second question that could rise in the minds of people who had just finished hearing what he had said in chapter 2 is, well, if Christ is above all powers, how is it that you, as his apostle, you are suffering in prison? It doesn't seem like Christ is victorious if his messenger is sitting in prison, suffering. Paul's answer to that objection, that question, is that God's power is made known in weakness. God's power is not demonstrated in the ways of the world, but in the paradox of weakness that is strength. As much as Christ's victories over the powers as described in chapter 2 were won through the weakness and foolishness of the cross, so also it is through the weakness and suffering of an imprisoned apostle that God was gathering people into the church. Paul's suffering on, was on their behalf and for their glory. Let's look at these two questions and Paul's answers in great detail. Rather than following the, the verses in the order that we find them, we will divide them in, in logical order as responses to these two questions that Paul is attempting to answer. So how did Paul know these things? By revelation of God to the apostles and prophets and from them to the church and through the church to the powers. How does he know these things? Revelation. Before we uh, look at the, the verses, there's one word that is repeated here that we ought to know, mystery. We heard that in, in the reading from John as well from Romans. Uh, we must know that mystery in the New Testament is always something that was previously hidden but has now been publicly revealed. While the pagan religions had their, uh, had their mysteries where secrets were kept secret and hidden and was revealed as secret knowledge only to a select few, the gospel is public knowledge of what was previously hidden but has now been revealed in Christ and through his messengers by the Holy Spirit. So how did Paul know these, know, uh, know these things? Verse 2 and 3 he writes, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. How does Paul know? He knows by the grace that was granted to him. This is not a privilege earned or deserved. God took a Pharisee, a persecutor of the way, knocked him down from a horse, blinded him, and made known to him that Jesus Christ is Lord. As Paul acknowledges here, this grace was not just for his benefit, but he was a steward of that grace that was given to him for the sake of the Gentiles, including the Ephesians. The stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. The truths that Paul had written to them about in the previous chapter were not made known to Paul uh, by any other means but God's revelation. Paul is not alone 
in receiving this gracious stewardship of this revelation as he says in verse 4 when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit Paul acknowledges this is not something he came up with on his own he's not that smart nor is he the sole recipient of this revealed mystery the mystery was previously hidden but now has been revealed to Paul and the other apostles and New Testament prophets by the Spirit Paul has the same apostles and New Testament prophets in mind that he had mentioned in chapter 2 verse 20 as the foundation of the church the household of God of which Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone however we have a problem here see the inclusion of the Gentiles in the family of God was not a secret in the Old Testament God had revealed even as early as in Genesis 12 that he would bless the nations through Abraham and his seed the account of creation itself should tell us that Yahweh the God of Israel is God of all nations by his virtue of being the creator of all things and all people moreover the inclusion of Gentiles as God's people is found all over the Old Testament in the Psalms and the prophets Isaiah for example prophesied that the nations shall flow to the mountain of the house of the Lord Isaiah chapter 2 1 to, 1 to 3 Psalm 68 and Psalm 87 predict that Egyptians and Ethiopians and uh, all kinds of Gentiles will be numbered among the people of Yahweh if that's the case in, in what sense then can Paul claim that the mystery of Jews and Gentiles being brought together as he had argued in chapter 2 was a mystery not made known to the sons of men in other generations Paul as we will see does not have in mind what was generally made known in the Old Testament that Gentiles too would become the people of God he has in his mind a very something very specific concerning the status of Jews and Gentiles who have been brought together as the body of Christ as we see in verse 6 we read in verse 6 this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel the mystery that has been revealed to Paul and other New Testament apostles and prophets is not that Gentiles will be included among the people of God that was already made known in the Old Testament the mystery revealed in the New Testament is that Gentiles and Jews are equal in the body of Christ using three compound words with the preposition with uh, attached as a prefix Paul declares that the mystery made known is that Gentiles are fellow heirs they are fellow members of the same body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel the Gentiles previously reviled as those who had no status with God and Israel now have equal status with the Jews in the body of Christ and that's what Paul presented in chapter 2 verses 11 to 22 as the demonstration of the power of Christ those who have been far off the Gentiles have been brought near by the one who preached peace to those who are far off and those who were near making them into one body the household of God where he dwells by his spirit how close have those who were far off brought near so close that there is no longer any difference in their privileges as fellow members of the church the body of Christ there is no Jew privilege 
or Gentile deprivation in the church. Jew and Gentile have been brought together as fellow heirs, members of the same body, the partakers of the same promises in Messiah Jesus. And all this through the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is glorious good news. This good news has been revealed. The Ephesians church needed to hear it. The church in America needs to hear it. We at Calvary need to hear it. Paul continues in verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He doesn't stop with the revealed mystery of equality between Jews and Gentiles. He goes on to disclose God's plan of making this mystery of Jewish and Gentile equality known to all, especially the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. These are the powers that create chaos in God's good world. These are the powers that cause strife and division and enmity and violence and chaos in the world. They are put on notice that their reign of dividing people and causing enmity has brought, been brought to an end in Christ. And God puts them on notice through the church. And this is God's version of show and tell. God will demonstrate to the rulers and authorities that Christ has defeated their work of causing divisions through the unity and equality in the church. What God has done in the church by bringing together and making equal Jews and Gentiles previously estranged and at enmity with each other, he will one day do for all creation. He has already disclosed this to those he has redeemed, as we saw in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. God has made known, Paul tells us there, uh, to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What God is do doing in unifying Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ, in the church, he will one day bring about for all creation when he completes the work of redemption and renewal of all creation, when Christ returns and establishes God's kingdom in its fullness. Paul concludes his answer to this first question, first objection. In verse 11 he says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he, that is God, has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The redemption and unification of Jews and Gentiles is no plan B. This has been God's plan from eternity. Paul had said earlier in chapter 1 that God is to be praised for choosing those he would redeem even before the foundation of the world. Here in chapter 3 we are told that God's entire plan of redemption that he has realized in Christ Jesus and will complete at the return of our Lord has been his eternal purpose. God has planned it this way all along. There are no surprises for our sovereign God. And it is in him, in Christ, Paul concludes, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. He concludes the answer to the first question with his glorious affirmation of what he had already said in chapter 2 verse 18. For through him, that is through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's what he said in 2.18. Here he adds boldness and confidence to the privilege of access. Jews and Gentiles together are the household of God. Together we have equal access to the Father in the Son and through the Spirit. We have equal access because we have all been brought to Christ by the same means, faith in Christ, into the grace in which we all stand. 
Paul moves on to this next objection that could have risen in the minds of his people. If Christ is all-powerful, how come you, his messenger of this all-powerful Lord, are sitting in, you are sitting in prison? So the, the second objection to Christ's position and power uh, is the reality of the suffering of his messenger, his apostle. If Christ is all-powerful and exalted over the powers, how is it that his apostle is suffering in prison? Doesn't Paul's imprisonment and suffering negate his claim that Christ is exalted above all powers? Paul answers that his circumstances were not a denial of the power of Christ, but actually an affirmation of it. See, the message of the victory of God through the weakness of the cross is also affirmed by the power of the message proclaimed through a weak and suffering messenger. God's story is Paul's story. Christ's story is Paul's story. He begins this chapter, this section by saying, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He acknowledges his suffering, his imprisonment, but at the same time he flips the script. He's not a prisoner of Rome. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and he's a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles. Paul could speak of himself as prisoner of Christ Jesus in two ways. He is the prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus, and that's true. He was imprisoned for his role as the apostle of one sent by Jesus the Messiah to proclaim to the ends of the earth that he is Lord. Paul could also mean that he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus in the sense that he was in prison not because the Romans held him there, but because that's what Christ required of him as part of his calling. As early as his uh, conversion in Acts chapter 9, uh, Christ would say to Ananias, whom he sends to open Paul's blinded eyes, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We don't do that when we share the gospel. <laughs> Let Jesus show you how much you must suffer for his name. But Paul was told right up front, and he was fully aware of his calling in, toward the end of Acts when the believers in Philip's household in chapter 21, they tried to prevent him from going to Jerusalem after Agabus prophesied his pending imprisonment. Paul declares to them, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's suffering was not a contradiction, but an affirmation of his calling a demonstration of Christ's authority whereby not only did he conquer the powers by the weakness of the cross, he would spread the message of that conquest through the same means, the weakness of his apostle who would carry out his calling through his suffering. Paul continues in verse 7 through 9, of this gospel he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul argues further for the power of weakness. He was given this glorious privilege of being an apostle of Jesus Christ, not because he was specially qualified or adequate for the task. Paul's calling to be a minister of the gospel is according to the grace 
another working of God's power made known through weakness. Paul was not worthy or adequate, but indeed he says he was the very least of all the saints. In 1 Corinthians, an epistle he had written before this, he describes himself as the least of all the apostles. He has moved up from being the least of all the apostles to the least of all the saints. And later on he would write first to Timothy, and there he would call them the chief of sinners. As you get closer to God, the way up seems to be the way down. The, Paul, the more Paul grew in his maturity, in his awareness of God's holiness, the grace that was granted to him not only to believe but to suffer for the sake of Christ as an apostle, his estimate of himself sank farther and farther. You know, a great indicator of our growth in maturity is our self-estimation before God goes down, yet our security in our being chosen and loved by God goes up. The closer we get to God, the more we realize how unworthy we are to be granted the gracious gift of salvation and the calling to be the ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was true of Paul, it's true of us. This grace given to undeserving Paul was the glorious privilege of preaching Christ crucified, risen and coming again. When an unworthy, inadequate, imprisoned and suffering Paul proclaimed the bottomless riches of Christ, the redemption whereby Jew and Gentile are made equal members of the household of God, people from every tribe, tongue and nation were brought into the body of Christ. God's power demonstrated through the weakness of the crucifixion of His Son is now being demonstrated through the suffering apostle whose obedience to His call brought the salvation accomplished by Christ to the Gentiles. Paul's suffering then was not a denial of the power of Christ but an affirmation of it. The means of the messenger are the same as that of his master who sent him, power through weakness. So Paul exhorts them, the last verse, So I ask you not to lose heart over which I am suffering for you, which is your glory. If God's purpose is accomplished and His power is demonstrated through His imprisoned apostle, then the Ephesians ought not to be disheartened by His suffering. Let's face it, imprisonment back then and now is a matter of shame. If I was to show up before the search committee and say, you know, I just got out of prison long too long ago, that would be the end of my candidacy. <laughs> uh, these Ephesians need not... <laughs> Good question, but not many stop to ask that one. Uh, these Ephesians, however, need not be ashamed of the imprisonment of their apostle because his suffering was for their glory even as the shame of the cross is to our glory, because by it we are saved by the one who gave himself for us, so also the shame of the apostle's imprisonment is to the glory of those who heard that message through him and were brought to faith in Christ through that message proclaimed in weakness. As much as Christ won his victory over the powers through the weakness of the cross, so also his victory is being made known and the redemption that he has accomplished is realized through the weakness of the suffering apostle. Glory indeed. So, we have seen chapter 3, 1 to 13 as scripted, as it is written. What does it mean as a script? How do we live out these mysteries uh, that have been revealed? 
First, the mystery of revelation. It's not just the gospel, but scripture as a whole, all of creation, uh, all of revelation, including creation, is by grace. If God had not made himself known, we would be fumbling in the dark and following after worthless idols, pursuing vapor and inheriting God's wrath. However, God in his grace has revealed himself in his world, but more importantly through his word. How do we receive God's word? Do we uh, receive it as a gift? Uh, do we consider time spent in his word, learning, meditating, and obeying his revealed will, a chore, a burdensome duty, or as a gift? I love, um, well, before we go there, um, I read yesterday that uh, this American Bible Society's annual State of the Bible report indicates that 26 million Americans have stopped reading the Bible during the pandemic. And it's also believed that this phenomenon may be connected to the drop in church attendance nationwide. Have any of you watched these unboxing videos in, uh, on YouTube and so on? People get this fantastic gadget and that they can't wait to open the box, see what's in there. Those are exciting. You know, we should feel like that every time we open the Word of God. Now, God's Word is also better studied in community with other believers. Uh, we have a number of opportunities for you to study God's Word through our connect groups. Please find them on our website and join one if you have not already done so. Some of you should be starting Bible study groups in your homes, in your apartment buildings, in your neighborhoods, even in your workplace. We look forward to reviving our Sunday morning classes soon. Pray. Let us delight ourselves in the word of the Lord. There is no better way to get to know who our, how great is our God and how all that He is for us than by turning to the word. The other mystery that was revealed is that God's powers made known through weakness. We just celebrated Good Friday, remembering that our crucified King was reigning even from the cross. We remembered that He conquered death and sin and the devil by His death and resurrection. The mystery of the gospel is that God's power is made known in, in weakness. See, any generic so-called God can assert Himself by demonstration of power, intimidation and so on. But it takes the true God of the universe to overcome the powers with what appears to be weakness. Christ crucified, we are told, is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We believe that, we celebrate that, but we reject this mystery that weakness is power. Now we memorize the verses uh, in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We memorize the words, but we live the opposite, right? You know, we pursue power, not weakness. You know, we would rather be seen in the White House than the poor house unless it's a, an opportunity for an Instagram moment. Evangelicals have become notorious for our craving for power. Uh, our intentions may be good. We want to see a society where the lives of the unborn are protected. Uh, we are alarmed uh, by the, the celebration of uh, what God deems uh, as, as uh, immoral and even a legitimization of that. And we want to see that curbed. 
Their intention is good, but our means are all wrong. We align ourselves with political leaders and, and parties believing that you know, righteousness comes through favorable legislation. It doesn't. If we want to see our nation transformed, we have to be engaged in the hard work of bearing insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities while loving our enemies, doing what is good toward them, and praying for them. In other words, if we want to transform the nation, we have to walk the way of weakness, even as our Savior did. Trusting in God to bring about His victory through our weakness, even as He did with His crucified Son. If we have to suffer for our stand for Christ, we don't seek to overcome that suffering through the ways of the world by means of political power. We live with the realization that our suffering for Christ is a sharing in the glory of the Lord. It has been granted to us for the sake of Christ that we should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Philippians chapter 1. Our suffering indicates that we are fellow heirs with Christ, and that as much as we share in His suffering, we should also share in His glory. Romans chapter 8. That's our response to the mysteries, but there's more that Paul says here. How do we live out uh, our calling as the church to be the witnesses? We saw that that was God's eternal purpose that he would make his manifold wisdom known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The church has a unique and invaluable role in the world. It is the chosen instrument of God to witness to powers that Christ is Lord over them. We exist for one reason, to bear witness to Christ. All that we do, whether it's worship or outreach or fellowship or missions, are all for one purpose, to bear witness to the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do the powers know that they are already defeated? When they look into the church and they see Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free men, male and female, barbarians and Scythians, all living in unity because their enmity toward each other has been laid to rest through the cross, that's when the powers know they are defeated. How do the rulers and authorities know that weakness is power? When they see the church proclaiming the gospel in word and life, in weakness, and see God gathering to himself people from all tribes and tongues and nation through that weakness of their, their witness. How do they know that Christ is above all power? When they see in the church people doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counting others more significant than themselves. When they see in the church people looking not only to their own interests, but also for the interests of others. Living our lives together in a manner worthy of the gospel of the weakness of the cross is our witness to the watching powers that Christ is Lord. And we bear this humility, we bear this witness in all humility and not with any sense of superiority or triumphalism. The powers are looking at the church, even ours. Will they still see themselves as Lord, as Lords still in power? Because when they look into the church, they see selfishness and conceit and arrogance and self-seeking. That's their way of life. That's the norm of living under the powers. But living under Christ is power made known through weakness. Paul speaks of equality in the body. That's the first mystery, it's that Jews and Gentiles are equal. He has argued in chapter 2 and declared here in chapter 3 that through Christ, God is not merely including the Gentiles among His people, but making them equal in every way. Fellow heirs, 
members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The body of Christ has no basis for superiority of any one group. We are all equally sinners. We are all equally saved by grace and all by the same means through faith in Christ Jesus. If that's the case, the most dominant visible feature of any church ought to be its unity in diversity. The fact that even in the 21st century, the 11 o'clock hour is the most divided hour in America is a blemish on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was watching a documentary called uh, Jesus Music, which celebrated the, the growth of contemporary Christian music over the last 50 years. But it also bemoaned the fact that the field remains divided along racial lines. People like Andre Crouch and Kirk Franklin were considered too black to be mainstream Christian artists. That's a travesty. I'll never forget what Kirk Franklin said. He said the racial divide in America will begin to heal only when the church realizes that it is one body in Christ. I was talking to a dear lady yesterday who said that her children were not permitted to attend Bible camps solely because they were black. I don't know what Bible they were reading. In the church, unity is gospel reality. Division in the church on any basis is a denial of the gospel. We celebrate the diversity at Calvary. However, are there inequalities that remain in our body? Are there people being treated as less than equal in our congregation? How about men and women? Are we considered equal in Christ? There are role differences in the church, but they are not on the basis of any inequalities. See, the world has discovered equality and justice and pursues it with a vengeance, with a cancel culture. The church, however, ought to be the living witness to equality of all who belong to Jesus Christ, irrespective of their race, their gender, their economic status, their education, or whatever else that makes us believe that some people are superior to others. Finally, this passage speaks of ministry as grace that is given to us. Three times in this passage, Paul would speak of his ministry as the grace of God that has been granted to him. We often think of ministry as what we do for God and for others. There's some truth to that. However, the reason that we can serve God and others is because God has graciously granted to us that privilege. Who are we that we should be called the children and servants of God? We have this great and glorious privileges in Christ alone. Ministry is a gift. When we evangelize, it is the grace given to us to invite people to the banquet of God. When we disciple people, it is the grace granted to us bring, to bring flourishing in the lives of those whom we teach to obey all things that Christ has commanded us. Now, we have great opportunities for ministry both within the church to one another and together as the church to those in the world around us. Uh, this afternoon, right after the service at 11.45, the women have a discussion on the use of spiritual gifts at 11.45 in room C114 at sea level. All, all women are welcome to join them and find out how the grace of God can be experienced through Christian service using the gifts that Christ has given us through the Spirit. All of us can go to the serve tab on our website and we'll find plenty of opportunities listed there to serve. Or better yet, talk to our pastors, Pastor Sean, Pastor Tom, Pastor Jim, Pastor Brunel, 
and they'll get you connected to the grace of God that is Christian service. In Christ, we have been brought together as equals in the body of Christ. In Christ, we have been granted the grace to serve with the weakness that is our strength because it is the power of God. That's the mystery that has been revealed. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, you work in ways that are unfathomable to us, Lord. In this world, we seek to divide people according to what we consider to be uh, superiorities or inequalities. But Lord, you do exactly the opposite. You bring all kinds of people together because all of us have in common, not only that we are people who have been created by you, but that we are sinners in rebellion against you who have been redeemed by the grace of Christ and by your spirit have been brought to faith in him. You have revealed that in the body of Christ there are no inequalities. Jew and Gentile are together, black and white, all of us. Help us to live out that mystery that you have revealed to us so that through our lives together we make it known to the powers that divide this world that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is one and his victory will prevail. And you've given us this glorious privilege to serve not because we are uh, exceptional or adequate for what you call us, but, but because we are insignificant and inadequate and the least among God's people, uh, yet you call us to serve because in our weakness you are our strength. And that is the power we need to make Christ known, to, to serve him faithfully in making his love known, even as we heard that, our, that your servant Ruth was doing all her life. Make us like her. Make us like your servant Paul. Help us to be servants who serve with the, with the, in our weakness and thereby through us realizing your power to bring people from all tribes and tongues and nations to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to the, the eternal throng of worshipers who will one day gather to praise you and your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.